there. I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Joshua Cohen's book, The Netanyahu's. Uh, we're going to discuss the final four chapters, which allows us to discuss the book as a whole. Of course, next week, we will dig into your questions. So if you would like to uh, leave a question for us to discuss next week, please do so over on closereads.substack.com, where we have our post and, and uh, the thread for, uh, for Q&A there. Uh, I'm sure there will be lots of questions because we we're only doing three episodes on this plus the Q&A. So there's going to be a lot of stuff that we're not able to cover, particular passages, particular issues that we're not going to be covering in detail until someone asks about it and tells us what they want to hear about. So um, before we get into that, though, Heidi, Tim, how's it going? It's good. really good. Yeah, really good. We have like seven inches of snow at our house today. So uh, whoa. called... Okay everything off it's just been an at-home day no piano lessons no guitar lessons no anything How and nice. it's like yeah. so nice yeah i'm sure as nice it is, is as it is to be doing things and be active it's also nice to do right. nothing right yes I, I just um i'm still reeling a little bit i just got done recording a Shakespeare podcast for the plays, the thing, mm. the podcast about all things Shakespeare. And one of our favorites, Sarah Jane Bentley was on the show talking about a book last by uh, the author, last name Gwyn. And the title of the book is just William Shakespeare. And she recounted the argument in the book. And this argument is asserting William Shakespeare is not the author of the plays of William Shakespeare. Wait, so and she buys have, into the theory. She picked up this book basically at random at a bookstore and she thought it was a little bit of literary criticism mm -hmm. and she started leafing through it. And next thing she knew, she had bought it, read the whole thing through. And now she doesn't believe that William Shakespeare wrote the plays of William Shakespeare she doesn't know who wrote them. The author of this book, Gwen, the author of the book, asserts, I will withhold in case people want to go listen to the podcast, asserts a name for the man who wrote William Shakespeare's plays. After talking with Sarah Jane and often just having done a little bit of research myself, I'm kind of like, I don't know that I believe that William Shakespeare wrote William Shakespeare's plays. Like which is any little, of them little, or just right. like... Yeah, like any of them. In any way. Yes, because the argument is very simple. There's it's, no way should go that listen a to the glove whole maker's son, they should go listen to the whole thing. There's, there's no way that a glove maker's son in Stratford-upon-Avon would have the access to the kind of education and courtly intrigues that, William, that, that the author of Shakespeare's plays clearly has. And... Also, if we, we are fairly confident only about maybe two pages worth of biographical information about William Shakespeare, that's the only stuff that we know. Everybody knows that we don't know much at all. One of those bits of biographical information is we have six of his signatures, not on any of his plays, and they do not look like a man who is uh, literate. They are, they hmm. are like scribbles. Well, I mean, there's anyway, lots of doctors who, would, who would say, you know what, that they would say that they're literate, even though they scribble their signature. Right, right. That would be a counter argument. <laughs> well, anyway, people need to go listen to this. It sounds like it sounds uh, fascinating. It will be, it will be up in about five days. I hope. Okay. Stay tuned. Okay. Stay tuned. The play's the thing. Well, and while we're here, before we get into our conversation on the Netanyahu's, we also need to let everybody know, congratulations are in order to Sean and Heather. Heather had their baby on Monday, um, the 13th. So congratulations on the arrival of, was it Brendan Michael Longfellow Johnson? That's something right. like that? Is that? I mean, I knew the Brendan part. I think that's right. So that's awesome. Congratulations to them. He is a handsome fella and... Um, you can check out the, I, I sent an email out today that has a picture of him and is also on the Facebook group. So everybody keep them in your, in your prayers uh, for continued growth and good health. And, uh, you know, toast, toast one to, uh, to Heather and Sean and their whole family. 
that's that's just great news. Great way to to, to, great news. to uh, celebrate Valentine's Day this week. Um, before we get into the conversation further, I also need to let everybody know about the fact that our friends over at the Cersei Institute have a couple, quite literally three actually, not a couple, three six-week intensives starting soon. And I just wanted to tell you what those are. Starting on February 28th, uh, Alec Bianco is doing one on St. Matthew's Passion, listening and learning through Lent. So in this one, you'll get to explore the masterpiece of the St. Matthew Passion, listening to excerpts of the music and analyzing both the musical settings as well as the libretto. And then Buck Holler, starting on March 1st, is doing a course on the fundamentals of Latin instruction. So we know that vocabulary and grammar and comprehension are all effectively taught and learned through an active use of the language that persistently focuses on the relationship between words, sentences, and ideas. And Buck is going to work through various examples uh, with the course members for practicing this as instructors specifically in the language classroom. So if you uh, if you want to get into more on, on the specifics of actually teaching Latin, not just learning Latin, then this is a great uh, option for you. And then finally... Back by popular demand is a course called Six Weeks to Socrates with Dr. Matthew Bianco. This starts Mar- March 6th. And in it, uh, Matthew Bianco, our old friend, will introduce Socratic teaching as it was modeled for us by Plato through the character of Socrates. Not just a class on the theory and philosophy of Socratic teaching, this class is going to give a practical guide to teaching like Socrates. So whether you are, say, an in-school instructor or a homeschool teacher or just, you know, want to increase your own understanding and education, you can check out these courses at circeinstitute.org slash events. Look in the webinars and intensive section and uh, choose one of those and register. So again, that's St. Matthew's Passion starting February 28th, uh, Fundamentals of Latin Instruction on March 1st, and Socrates with Matthew Bianco on March 6th. Heidi, if you had to choose one of these three to to take, what would you what would you take? And understanding that it doesn't mean that you don't like one of the other people that is teaching the courses. Right, right. now at this point in your life, which one would you uh, be most drawn to? I think I would I'm very interested in the fundamentals of Latin instruction. I'm mm. always felt pretty inadequate to teaching language and so that would i would be really interested in learning more about that and buck really knows latin like he can do a whole course where there's no english speaking in it so he's like immersive and to sit under buck's teaching would is definitely a plus for that if you've ever wanted to learn latin with a cowboy this is your this is a great chance he's a genuine Mm -hmm. cowboy that also is a genuine scholar tim what about you What, what do you think of those three which would you be most inclined to to dig into socrates Socrates and Plato. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Socrates you could argue, and Plato. You could argue about Socrates and Plato with Matt Bianco. Yeah. Yeah. We've 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 already argued a decent amount. It would be fun to just argue a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> Over six weeks. Over six weeks. Yeah. So, so I'm sure you, our it, classmates would love that. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh all right. So check those courses out. Those are all three great options for this spring. Um, and with great teachers. So hey Tim, you notice what I'm wearing? What are you wearing, David? I'm wearing our, oh, our, nice our jean, jean jacket. jacket. I yeah. love it. I so love when, it. Tim, when everyone jacket. was here, sweet we, moment. Tim and I realized that we were literally wearing not just the same jacket, which is one thing, uh, Banana Republic denim jacket. We also were wearing exactly the same pants, traveler, great traveler jeans from Banana Republic. It was uh, it was a whole same thing, brand whole of shoes. And same brand, same of, brand shoes, of shoes. And you have matching shirts. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. And I had was, the sh- I owned the shirt. It was a little was alarming. Wearing. Yeah, it, it was. It was. Well, I just thought it was adorable. <laughs> Throws adorbs. Many things that are adorbs <laughs> are also alarming, as uh, <laughs> as every parent knows. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of things that are alarming and perhaps not adorable, let's talk about the, the Netanyahu right? book. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so this is a book that um, you know, I said last week. There's a lot of things we can't talk about until you get to the end, and the end is a bit traumatic and perhaps bleak and complicated and also full of a ton of history and philosophy. And I think there's going to be a lot of um, disparate responses to it. Tim, you said last week, we kind of talked about whether this book is working, whether there's enough of a the conflict is clear there. And right. Um, and then, so I'm curious to know, how do you feel about it as you get to the end of it? Do you feel like that, that the disparate, uh, there's that word again, I just use the same word twice, but Conf- senses uh, like points of conflict are clear enough for you. 
Yes. I got to the end of this book and I thought to myself, this is a genuine masterpiece and I have no idea why it's a, but I have no idea why it's a genuine masterpiece. Like I just think I was riveted through these last four chapters hmm. plus the appendices. Um, but if you asked me to give like a clear and stalwart defense of its genius, I would struggle aside from three things, the prose, the humor, and he's shining a light, it seems, on the modern Jewish identity with all its kind of like fractures and disagreements within and among Jewish people. Like he's shining a bright light on it. But that's about as far as I can go to defend why I think it's so brilliant. Mm. I just got to the end. And I just thought, oh my goodness, like I was breathing hard. I had to put the, the book down and I don't know exactly what to make of it. Yeah. That's how I felt when I read it for the first time. It's been really enlightening to read it again because I think there's certain like craft things that he does that come into focus that clarify a little bit about why you get that tone that sense and it's interesting Can you give because us some ex- i really well, want to hear your thoughts on this david i don't want you to skate over it so. no I, we'll, we'll come back to it but one you know okay. one of the things that's so interesting to me is that you can have this whole chapter where he's basically bloom is basically or blum is basically summarizing netanyahu's lecture and somehow it's it should be so dry and it's not but it's not i know um and now, Heidi, I know that I, I don't want to throw you under the bus by saying this, but I know that you didn't finish it a lot before the episode started. Like, you, it was pretty quick. So you're kind of uh, like, yeah. you kind of fire hosed it there at the end. And so you're jumping yes. on very fresh. So I'm curious for you, having just finished it, had very little time to process it. Do you feel like Tim does? Yeah, for sure. I I definitely do. I've I've never read a book like this before. I Like, I... Mm-hmm. I don't have a I don't have like a category to put it in mm-hmm. and I really like that like like you said I wish I I wish I would have not procrastinated on my reading and hey, it wish We're busy. Had, had more time right to to think about it because I know I'm gonna have a lot of thoughts but I do kind of feel like a little bit like a deer in the headlights and I'm grateful to be on the podcast now to represent all of the listeners who feel like deers and headlights in finishing the end of this book because I'm one of you. We are one. Uh, we are in solidarity because this is like what a book. Just to clarify, what's the plural of deer? Doe? I think it's just deer. <laughs> but I said deers. You did. Which goes to show you and how just how struck you are. Flabbergasted. Yeah, but, I am. But also, it might be a nice uh, positive Freudian slip where you were doing D-E-A-R-S to refer to the audience. Oh, this... So you were punning okay, on yeah, it. Okay, yeah, maybe so. And so doing... Say, but not the book. You were it's building a relationship. D-E-A-R. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> you were just highlighting your, your relationship with the dear audience members for whom you're standing in. And um, dear. And, and dear. And dear. <laughs> Indeed. And... In, that's an endearing mistake. Okay. I, okay so, yeah. Um, yeah. Do we, Tim, do you think we need to talk about the specifics of Netanyahu's theories? Heidi, for you, do, do, do like, does arguing about the specifics seem like the point of the book? Oh, I, what a good question. Oh, man. Uh, I think Netanyahu, sorry, Heidi. Go jump ahead. In. Go ahead, Tim. Um, yes. Absolutely. The particulars of his lecture at the end are absolutely crucial to the whole book. I totally agree with that. And I think that, okay, so just craft wise, I think Cohen does a masterful job in this book of orienting people to something that they may not know anything about and giving us multiple perspectives on it through just telling us a great story. I, I I think if you don't know anything about Netanyahu, you could read this book and you could you could engage in the conversation. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you disagree with that, Tim? No, no, I don't. I mean, one of the problems of the book is what is fact and what is fiction? Because there's a lot of exactly. fact in here and there's mm-hmm. a lot of fiction in here. Mm-hmm. And Cohen does takes very few pains to highlight the difference. 
And Which that's is what, exactly the point Netanyahu makes about the Jewish nation. Is how on, they hist- like he makes this point in that that the Jew that the Jews are the least historical oh, uh, right. obs- obsessed nation culture in history. Mm-hmm. And that all they've been so oppressed throughout history that what does it matter who yeah, the oppressor what's the point? is? What does it matter yeah. how they were oppressed? It all goes back to like all oppressors are versions of the Egyptians. Part of this myth, right? This tr- this true Jewish myth, so to speak, that that becomes overlapped and retold again and again throughout history. Uh, so much so that history is lost. And and so the question of how fact and fiction bleed into each other in this novel is, dare I say, an objective correlative. Like it's a it's a formal choice that represents the thematic issue, and I think that's brilliant. Tim, did you find yourself like as you're reading Blum's sort of summary, his his version yeah. of the lecture, whatever you want yeah. to put it? Where, did you find yourself, um, I don't, I don't know, being familiar with what he was talking about, like being able to assess the argument that he was making? Um, did you find yourself agreeing, disagreeing? Where, where did you find yourself on coming down on his on his lecture? It's hard because the point that Bloom makes is that Netanyahu is is kind of writing a theology or like, I don't know what the right word is, an anthropology of the Jewish people that's kind of somewhat metaphysical as much as he's writing a history. And let me explain that. The, the book that Netanyahu talks about during this book is a real book, real book, a 1600 page tome written by Benzion Netanyahu, father of Benjamin Netanyahu, in which he asserts that when the Jews were thrown out of Spain in 1492, this is a famous moment in Jewish history, that the kind of the the ordinary historical telling has been they were thrown out for being Jewish. Netanyahu says, but if you go back and look at the historical record, the, those Jews living in the Iberian Peninsula at that time were actually converts to Christianity. And they were not forced converts. They were genuine and real converts to Christianity. How then could it be that the Catholic authorities would throw out the Jews at this time if they were exactly what the Catholic authorities wanted. They wanted converts to Catholic Christianity mm-hmm. in Europe at the time. And so Netanyahu's, again, this is the part that's that's true, and it's also recounted in the book. Netanyahu makes this kind of claim, well, this was the beginning they were thrown out because the authorities wanted to get rid of the Jews because they were serving their the the Catholic authorities' political enemies. But really, when it comes right down to it, why did they get rid of them? Because they were Jewish, because they were ethnically Jewish. And that's what he stakes his whole claim on. And he kind of goes meta from there that this is basically the an undeniable unchangeable reality about the jewish experience is that they will always be the persecuted ones they will always be the outsiders and so what bloom is kind of saying what bloom says is this isn't really history i mean Sure, he did his historical research and it was good historical research, but the claims that he's making and the kind of tenet of his life is much, it is a kind of meta-historical statement or a supra-historical statement. It just says, we will always be the oppressed ones. We have always been and will always be the oppressed ones. And that's where Bloom is kind of like, yeah, that's not really a historical claim. And I think Bloom disagrees with him on that that key point. And one of the things that I don't think you said this just now, but that Netanyahu reinforces in the book in his lecture is that during this Inquisition, 
they made it a the church the catholic church made it made it a jewishness a race not not just a religion they emphasized it as a race thing which then was the which was the 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 seeds that were planted for the holocaust and for other yeah you know previous to that time the Jew being Jewish was primarily thought of as a religious category. But after that, the kind of like religious category and ethnic category kind of got split. Yeah. Yeah. That's an important point. So man, where do we want to start with this? Man, I don't know. I don't know. One of the things I love about this book is the way it sort of shifts what it is and, how you're supposed to think about its characters. And I think it does that in conjunction with these arguments becoming clarified, like becoming put out there. Mm. Um, Because I think on the one hand, you have the argument that's being made by Netanyahu. And then on the other hand, you have Bloom and his family who are what, who, who kind of are evidence of what Netanyahu is worried about, right? And the more the book goes, the longer the book goes on, the more you kind of begin to see that maybe he's, maybe he's right. You know, at the end of the book, after the lecture, Edith, who's been drinking, says to Bloom, or, or something to the effect of, I don't, I don't believe in anything anymore. Mm. You know, she, you know, remember, how, remember when we were young and we were so serious about everything? And this is where I think the comedy of the book is really important. This the humor of the book. Because she points out, you know, we used to be so serious about these ideas. We used to care about these things. We would talk about, you know, I don't remember all the words, but like virtue and aesthetics and politics. And and these were the things that defined who we were and, and our, defined our character and, and defined what we were going to be in the future. But now here we are. And I've discovered I don't believe in anything, you know. Mm. And they've been subsumed into the culture at large. Um, they've been sort of like all of these things that they thought were going to define them got knocked out of them. They became less important to them. Um, things like, you know, the TV become important. <laughs> uh, and I think that's kind of like a little metaphor there, but um, then at the same time, for most of the book, Bloom is just making fun of everything. And what becomes clear in this, the last quarter of the book, I think is that when he's making fun of everything at the first two thirds of the book, you're kind of laughing along with him. But then you realize that he has no capacity to be serious about things that you need to be serious about. Um, she says, you're, you know, we used to be serious, but you're not serious anymore. There's a number of passages that mention things like that. And I think that as the book goes on, Bloom himself becomes less appealing of a character. Um, and I think that that calls into question exactly how we're supposed to think about the Netanyahu, the Netanyahu's, because it's through his perspective that we're given the sort of quote Yahoo nature of the Netanyahu's. So I'm not saying that the book is offering an unreliable narrator. We could get into that a little bit. I actually think it's possible that it is based on like the purest literary definition, not in the sense that we can't trust what's happening, but in the sense that it's not that the narrator is not necessarily consistent with the ethos of the author, um, but I think that it, it 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 you begin to have more sympathy for the ideas uh, of Ben Zion Netanyahu by the end of the book than you did like halfway through. Heidi, do you agree with that? Like, do you how did you feel about Bloom by the end of the book and then Ben Zion Netanyahu's theories? Okay. Um. I would say my opinion about Blum remained consistent throughout the entire book, but my, my reaction or feelings about him changed. Um, Meaning at the beginning, I knew what kind of person he was at the end. He remains the same kind of person. He undergoes no meaningful change in this book, but in character in core. Uh, But, he, our reaction to him changes with, changes with the narrators, with, with the narration of the book, even from his own perspective, which I think is one of the reasons why this book is so brilliant and why it won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, 
And because like to your point, David, you're kind of laughing and winking with him. You're admiring his restraint sometimes. Um, and then, uh, but later on, it turns out uh, by the end of the book that you see him in this very different light. Um, but he doesn't seem to see, well, maybe he does. Like one of the questions for me is, does he see himself rightly? Um, to me, the problem with him as I was reading it is very is not only specific to actually just don't know this because I don't know Jewish culture. I'm learning about it through these books. Um, but I think he's also representing something much larger than himself. That is a, a problem of modernity, not just a problem, but a tragic flaw of modernity. Uh, he is also a modern man as well as being a Jewish man. And he is small souled. And that's the issue. Like, and he, and he names that himself on page 212 with this long, tragic paragraph about uh, at the, at his interpretation of the lecture that Netanyahu gives when he talks about his wife, right? Um, Edith's problem isn't merely boredom with you or her work or with the insufficiency of options for educated women, right? And he says he, he's feeling this condemnation from Netanyahu, but it's really from himself. And he says, at the end of that paragraph, your life here is rich in possessions, but poor in spirit, petty and forgettable with your frigidaires and color TVs in front of which you can munch your instant supper, laugh at a joke and choke, realizing you've traded your birthright away for a bowl of plastic lentils. That is so powerful. And it's true. It's completely true. And, and, that he has this capacity for something. He he has a capacity that he's not meeting. Like he has room in his soul to do something meaningful, but he chooses not to. And so does Edith and celebrates that on the walk home. I'm proud of the fact that I no longer have any convictions, that I have no longer any meaningful work or desire to engage in something beyond myself. I don't even believe in it anymore. That is a modern problem. That's not just about being Jewish. And, and, and this book just echoes in that empty space to me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but the Bloom, uh, how do I, the Netanyahu's as conveyed in this book, fairly or unfairly, are monstrous. They are right. monstrous people. What's the other option for them to become like the Netanyahu's? Right. So I think I have sympathy with Bloom and Edith saying, gosh, I don't know that we believe in anything anymore because the counterpoint is what we've just experienced through the last three episodes of this of this book which includes the kind of like tolerant boys will be boys attitude of a rape right like we walk in on like it's just a disaster we walk home from um netanyahu's meeting um, with the faculty and the youngest boy has pulled the TV console down on himself. And he's kind of like asleep on shattered glass while upstairs, Benjamin is keeping watch as his older brother has infiltrated the Bloom's daughter's room. And it seems like a rape. It was either about to happen or has happened. And then all hell breaks loose and out in the snow Edith Bloom or or Netanyahu's wife, what is I always I can't I mispronounce her name. Zila. Zila um teases the Blooms for being like sexually repressed. And of course, Edith then just can't even handle what is being said, and she attacks Zavila while Netanyahu stands by and kind of translates his wife's Hebrew so she can be understood. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. And I think this is the dilemma of Bloom's family. Like, if is this the counter, is this what it looks like to right. believe in something? I'm going to choose to believe in nothing. Or it seems like I am just like drifting toward believing in nothing. And 
I find that when juxtaposed with the Netanyahu's behavior to be uh, a plausible option. Yeah, but don't you think an even better option is to believe in a better thing? Of right? course, like, and, of, and course I'm, right. of course. And But that, to, to your point, that's there's absolutely no point of contact for that within the book. But we know that that does indeed exist in Jewish tradition because we just read My Name is Asher Love. So we know that there is a compelling option for Jewish piety and engagement in the tradition that is existing and alive and well, that is completely neglected within the conversation that this book raises, Mm -hmm. which isn't to negate the book at all. This is a great book, but it does come to the conclusion, it does offer two completely, uh, monstrous, like you said, options for being Jewish in America. And I, but that's incomplete, but that is the book that we have. And so then we can engage in the conversation about that, right? Because you're right. If those are the only two options to be completely small sold or to be like, like the Netanyahu's to be zealots for something that turns you into a monster, like those are bad options. Neither are good. I'd probably I'd probably go the Blum way too. Mm-hmm. But those mm-hmm. aren't the only options. And I think maybe that's part of the conversation that that is taking place outside of the book. But that's not the book we have. Right. So so then is this a nihilistic book? Oh yeah, totally, completely, hundred percent. I would have to. You'd have to convince me super strong that this isn't nihilistic. But that doesn't mean it's not good. Like in this, and I don't mean morally good, like as a book, it's very good. Like, yeah. Tim, what do you think of that? I don't know. I really don't know. The book is, um, it does seem like it only presents two options, which is part of what I was struggling with last week. And the fact that our author is um, so knowledgeable, not just about Jewish history, but also about American history. The fact that he asserts it as a dilemma, um, uh, I don't want to write it off as a false dilemma. I, I think that would be not, not kind of allowing that. the author to kind of do his work on us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I, I think by saying it's a false dilemma is a way of let is a way of saying um we get out of the problem. And I and I think that that Cohen would say you can't get out of this problem. This is not a false dilemma. This is a real dilemma. It's a double bind. Like it's, it, yeah, this is right. really what it's like to, to choose, to feeling like you have to choose between these two things is a real problem. I agree with that. I, I think that that's right. Um, not from personal experience, but um, I, I agree that we can't dismiss the questions that he's raising. Who? Who's Cohen. he? Cohen? Cohen. Cohen. And in a strange way, isn't it so similar to the conclusion of Asher Lev? He has to leave. It's not the kind of darkness of the conclusion of this book is not present at the end of Asher Lev. The end of Asher Lev is very, very sad. He's leaving his family. He's going Mm -hmm. into kind of something like an assimilation land, right? And it's we feel the heartbreak of that. But the darkness of that is not as prevalent in that book as it is in this book, which makes me think these two books that are so concerned about Jewish identity in the 20th century both end with the exact same dilemma, which makes me think it can't be a false dilemma. I'm not, can you, I'm not can you Jewish. you restate that dilemma for the, for the audience? How, we, how would you restate that? So I'll speak as if I'm, you know, like Bloom. Jewish bloom, we must Blum. either choose to be faithful to our ethnic and religious traditions 
and not blend in with American society. In fact, build up, you know, relatively high walls around us to protect us from American society so we don't aren't assimilated. And that creates a certain, this is Bloom speaking, antisocial behavior and positions, political and cultural. Or the other choice is we knock down the walls, we assimilate, will still be seen for Jewish and will still be kind of like sneered at for being Jewish in many ways. But at least we will um, have the sort of protections of belonging to the assimilated within American society. And if the cost of that is, yeah, I had to I had to shed my religious beliefs and my ethnic belongings and my traditions then okay so be it There's a lot to to discuss here um and I want to focus on the book as much as possible as opposed to just focusing on like the I the ideas that the book proposes, which is you can't separate the two exactly. Right. That's hard. Heidi, you said that you think that there's only two options here. In reading it again, I don't think I really think that's true. Exactly. Go on. I think that, I think that one of the things that the book is doing is showing that maybe Blum doesn't see the world for what it is. And that perhaps, you know, ultimately this is a, it is a false dichotomy because I think that like you have, is it his in-laws or his parents that are devout? You know, they're, they're, they practice their religion. Parents, Yeah. His parents and his grandfather is, or his father, sorry, Judy's uh, grandfather is kind of a brute about it. But the problem is that by the end of the book, I don't think we really are able to tell like I think that he is ultimately Blum is ultimately a cynic, so he doesn't have a lot of time for right. anybody that believes anything. In in you know ultimately, Edith comes right out and says it. He just reveals it through his actions and his like morbid sense of humor. And so, every time someone presents some kind of earnest belief, he kind of just like mocks it. And I don't think that we're supposed to take that as Cohen just mocking it. I think that that's Blum is mocking it. And so I, I don't think that we're, I think that there's a lot of other possibilities out there that he doesn't have sort of the eyes to see and that his inability to see things for what they are and to sort of uh, turn every form of belief into a theory is part of the point of the book. I think it's what complicates it and makes him, um, kind of a uncomfortable narrator to to be in the shoes of i think reading it a second time really personally bring brings that out more like i think it you you see earlier this the the way he's ironizing blum and even the sort of notion of a narrator um so i think that i think that we have to be aware of blum's I think he's kind of intellectually dishonest. What other beliefs does he um, ironize aside from Jewish beliefs? Now, by he, I'm going to, yeah, not Cohen. Academic runs right to him. Like, he makes makes fun of the Catholic nun. He makes fun of the evangelicals that are in, you know, he makes fun of the seminary. He makes fun of. um, He skewers academic culture just as much as he does. Jewish culture, I think. There's this, you know, there's this moment where it's, it's a massive objective correlative, Heidi. Um, <laughs> Take a shot. It is at the beginning. Yeah, it's at the beginning. Well, I didn't say it, it's you. So, uh, okay. Beginning of chapter 11. So, one thing that I find fascinating is that at the end of 10 and the end of 11, he just ends these chapters mid thought, like mid conversation with like mid thought by Netanyahu 
And he doesn't like wrap the conversation up or anything. It's just like right in the middle of it. Like, in fact, at the end of 10 on 183, it's the middle of a sentence. Um, and then it, chapter 11 begins with my sharpest memories of that Netanyahu day are of being outside in the weather whose bluster stirred, stirred up so much anxiety inside me, rushing cross campus between buildings whose locations I wasn't quite sure of, buildings I knew by name, but not sight, or by sight, but not name, anxious about being late, anxious about taking a tumble on the ice, and above all, after the interview, anxious that my temper wouldn't hold and I'd lose my patience entirely. Um, I think that, like... In 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 a lot of ways, this is a book about Blum's anxiety and the way he processes the things that are going on around him. I think I think it's a book about ideas, and I think it's a book about Jewish culture. I think it's a book about what it means to be an American. I think it's a book about assimilation, all those things, diaspora. But I think it's all rooted in the psychology of our narrator and the deep anxiety and and unsettling that he's on whatever the word is that he's living in and that causes him to not be able to see people for who they are, to not take people seriously, to not even take his daughter's own anxieties seriously. He, he, in his own anxiety, he turns away from realities all around him. And I think that makes everything that he says a little bit complicated to interpret. Um, and so, and so what I actually think that the book does is it respects Netanyahu's theories far more than it seems like on the surface. Because on the surface, Blum is telling us these guys are crazy. And the book does present them as crazy. I don't necessarily know that I agree, side note, with what you're saying about it being a rape, Tim. We can come back to that later. Um, but I think that, yes, the book presents them as monstrous, like yahoos and all that. But I think that we can't entirely take at face value what Blum's interpretation of everything around him. But the one thing that we can we can take at face value is Netanyahu's ideas because he's summarizing he's summarizing these lectures and he seems to be offering them in as much clarity as possible. And the book itself then seems to really respect Netanyahu's ideas because it's the one place where it's telling the actual truth. This is a novel, Netanyahu's a little bit made up, Blum is completely made up version of Harold Bloom, but the ideas of Netanyahu are factual. Like, as you said, Tim, you can find those in a book. You know, those things for the most part are, from every bit of research that I've done, the essays that I've read on this book, Cohen's comments, they're saying that the ideas that Netanyahu presents here are factual. And the ideas that he presents right. are way more compelling than the man himself. And I think that... and I, think I can that, get with that. I think that that contradiction is really interesting because it makes the ideas the one thing that we can assess as like in earnest without having to figure out the irony of it. So, so by definition, then that makes those it respects those ideas really in a really important way and asks us to take them seriously in a way that maybe it doesn't all the characters built around it. So, I think then that makes the book focus on the ideas and ask us to focus on the ideas and the theories and really contemplate them, really think about whether there's some truth in them in a way that other another author wouldn't be able to do in the same situation. But I think because he's ironizing everything, it complicates our relationship with them and we have to kind of unpack it and dig out and dig out like digging it, like taking the car out of the snow. I, okay. End of, end of thought there. <laughs> I agree with that hundred percent. I think everything that you said is right. I don't think that that, um, makes it means it's not nihilistic right exactly but it, again i don't say that it's nihilistic in order to dismiss it or to um or or to say it doesn't raise important questions about identity because it does because we are uh this this is how people think about life right now well is it possible and so and Go ahead. Sorry. Go, no, no, no. I'm all done. Go ahead. Well, sorry. I kind of lagged. Is it possible that the book is not nihilistic, but our narrator is? Because if you think about nihilism as the idea of like rejecting religious and moral principles and the idea that life is meaningless, I don't think that the book is doing that. I think our narrator is doing that. I I don't agree. 
I think the book is. I think it's doing that. I don't think it's doing that because I think what it's doing is it's giving us like Netanyahu's ideas at face value. It's, it's respecting Net- those ideas. Netanyahu's ideas are not religious. They're political. And that's, he makes that entire point. That no, is but that Netanyahu's mean, point. Like, it's so, opposite of but hold on. religious isn't nihilistic though. I know. But, but Netanyahu's point is that the meaning of history is for for the meaning of Jewish history is towards a political Jewish state, right? And so Netanyahu's answer to the problem of Jewish history is a nihilistic solution. And that is a because nihilism isn't just about the opposite of religion, to your point. And and a true nihilist, like a Nietzschean superhero, right, is someone who accepts that life is meaningless and and that there's no ultimate meaning and then creates as themselves a power unto themselves. And that is the that that is Netanyahu's solution, right? So even if he's right, it's still nihilistic. And and again, I don't say that to dismiss the book. Sometimes sure. you have to name things, right? And so that that is the naming. There's no there's nobody in the story who is advocating that the Jewish faith is true for what it claims to be. Nobody. Nobody is saying that God came to the Jewish people. Even Netanyahu, excuse me, even Blum's father is advocating for a Jewishness that is traditional, but not religious. And so that is, and that's what um, Asher Lev brings forth, right? Is this, is, is a traditional Judaism that actually believes in the master of the universe. Nobody in this book is, does. And, and again, like I said, that's not, I'm not saying that to condemn it or dismiss it or to say, hey, you have to be religious for me to take it seriously. Take it seriously. But I take it seriously as a modern nihilistic novel. And that's okay. Dan, what do you think? I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit hung up on the vessel of Benzion Netanyahu as like the vessel for these ideas. I think the ideas are clearly and forcefully stated. Um, and I think that we're meant to take them seriously. And I don't know if we're meant to reject them or not, but I just find it troublesome that the vehicle, the vessel for them is a pretty terrible man. I don't mean the real historical character. I mean the figure that we see in the book. Um, I found him, I mean, just to be like repulsive in every way. And so it's just hard for me to say, well, there's no relationship between his character and the ideas that he espouses. I don't think that we can separate them so easily i don't know that we're meant to separate them so easily well i mean one could have a debate about whether uh, a complicated man can have good ideas uh but i don't think that's necessarily what the book is saying but like where do you see right. him trying to like where do you see him being despicable man the way that he treats reuben on the way home the disdain that he has for all of his future potential colleagues um the way that he has i mean like his sons he has no relationship with his sons his sons are running amok and he's abstracted and like making phone calls in the kitchen <laughs> um yeah. he he seems to disdain his wife i mean i i'm i'm struggling to find a single thing aside from his his political theories that is worthy of esteem in the man and i don't i'm I'm not saying that oh yeah and i do esteem his theories i think that we're meant to take them seriously because this is mm-hmm. the zionist argument but i don't think that 
we can uncouple those arguments from the vessel. I think the only there's there's two things about him that I found compelling. Um, I think he's very courageous, and I think the book itself acknowledges his courage. Now, courage is only a virtue if it's in service to something worth being courageous about, right? <laughs> but um, and so I think that that gives us a complicated character. Um, the moment when he tells Reuben that he if tells him if you came to Israel. I might not be able to get you a job, but I would do everything in my power to get you an apartment. And in a war, I would die for you. There was a, there was something admirable about that, I thought. Some kind of his, he seems to be uh, assuming a solidarity and resisting a solidarity with Reuben at the same time. Um, and that, uh, but in that moment, I felt like he said something true that Reuben didn't have. And can I um, jump in there, Heidi? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I, I read that as Reuben, if you join my, if you adhere to my Zionist beliefs, then I'll treat you like a human being. Maybe so. Maybe, maybe mm. I was, this, that was just the one moment that I thought, ah, uh, there's something in him that, that is trying to find solidarity. The other thing that I admired was the way he took what was the way he rose. I thought he rose to the occasion in that interview when he was ambushed, which we all see that coming a mile away, right? Nobody, nobody's surprised by how he's treated in that interview. Um, and I, I thought he handled it. I thought he did. A, I, I, I thought just like David, that he's said that he is so Morally, to your point, Tim, so morally reprehensible that you don't expect him to be a great scholar, but then the book actually portrays him as a great scholar. Maybe he's wrong, right? Maybe he's wrong about his scholarly. Uh, maybe maybe he's wrong, um, but it but portrayed him as courageous yeah. and 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 internally consistent. And I thought he rose to the occasion in that moment in a way that when Ruben's literally shrinking against the wall, yeah. but 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 Lanyahu's standing for something. And I found that admirable, even if misguided. Um so that those were my only two, and that isn't to argue with you. Those were just my only my two the things I noticed that I thought, oh, maybe there's something admirable here. Mm -hmm. And the, but that was the only thing. Everything else, to your point, I thought he was just an ass. Yeah. Is he? Is he better than is Blum? Is Blum better than him? No. That's the point, right? Like Blum is not courageous. Like Netanyahu is. He's not. But Blum has absolutely no posture of being willing to learn from that or anything. Like they're just both equally portrayed as as i think these in, in, in response to the in response to their the problem of jewishness that's presented in the novel uh they respond in opposite ways and there's nobody in in the golden mean right it's yeah, interesting right, right like ben zion is the one who like stands up with his philosophy and will punch you in the face with it. Well, at least he's like standing up for something. Whereas Ruben, instead of standing up, slinks away, but at least he's not inflicting harm. You know, it's like, which one is worse? Yeah. They're uh, both. They, they they're both, both hugely problematic. Man, I, Yeah. It's, they're both know. vices. In fact, they're the both vicious. All the things yeah. that you just said about Netanyahu, his sons were running, like his daughter's running amok. His relationship with his wife is screwed up. Totally. Um, you know, Completely. His own, I agree. You know, yeah, he's kind of a coward. You know, I think, I think, but I was not making, I was not making my case as to defend Bloom. Sure. It was, no, I, I was understand. making my yeah. case that the, I, it was, I don't know that you can uncouple the ideas from the vessel who is right. Benzion. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so I, but I think one of the things that makes the book complicated 
is that at first you feel like you're in the hands of someone who's trustworthy, and then you kind of realize you're not. And that the uh, and that complicates what the book is trying to tell us. Like in the end, it's a lot harder to know you know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. I don't think that we you know are supposed to come right. away feeling like Blum who's who's been telling the story is this font of wisdom. I think he's he's sort of self-protective and and uh a little dishonest with himself and um you know all those things that make it complicated to know how to interpret his telling which is why i think you have to take you have to be a little bit careful about the way you judge all the characters in the book because you're getting them you're being given them through his perspective that doesn't mean that i think that netanyahu's like a good guy but in in the book um right but i think it complicates what he's doing and i don't so i and you know so i i think one of the things that I wanted to make the point today is that I think that it's skewering. It's not just skewering the quote yahoos, the net and yahoo family that the bloom calls the yahoos. It's like calling into question that skewering by skewering the person who's doing the skewering by right. calling them oh, the yahoos. Yeah. And so that makes, right. so it's skewering, it's skewering all these different angles of, and saying skewering over and over again gets a little difficult after a while. Like it starts to become like a non-word after a while. It's just like sounds, um, but it's skewering <laughs> both sides of of this debate in a way that makes it, as I said, just a little bit difficult to know how to interpret. And I think makes the thus the makes the discussion more compelling. It makes the the argument more compelling because the book isn't just telling us what to believe, which it easily could have if you take if you say, well, Joshua Cohen is you know a, a leftist, a liberal New York Jew who he would obviously take Bloom's perspective, Blum's perspective. Like that would be the easy way, but I don't think he takes, it's not the obvious angle in my, in my opinion. Um, we don't have a lot of time left here. Um, Can we go back to, I um, asserted that there was either a rape or a potential rape and you weren't so sure. And I, and I think you're probably right. I think it's meant to be somewhat ambiguous, I think, because either the ambiguity supports sort of both streams of the book. Either the mm -hmm. son is this aggressor, mm -hmm. um, like his father, you know, and like um, the grandfather in the book, or the daughter is sort of a licentious um, new woman who, you know, will sleep with a guy that she has only just met a few hours before. Like and either she's way, the older one, and she's the older one. Either way, it kind of. Jonathan it, is thirteen. Jonathan, thirteen years old in this book. That's how old this boy is. How and she's so she's going to be she's a senior in college she's seventeen or she's eighteen yeah oh man school. I yeah. completely yeah. high school that. yeah yeah maybe yeah. I should yeah. roll back the kind of like rape charge and just but I think leave that it. you're I think you're right in the question like the the question of that encounter mm -hmm. is multi layered according to the contemplations of the book right because the question is who's exploiting whom who is the aggressor right and you like. Who who is to blame for such an absolutely? I mean, uh, how do you recover from something like that? Mm. Thirteen? How either of them? Mm -hmm. Like that's the families, a permanent yeah. damage in both of their lives psychologically in the family. It's it's a wound. Then it's representative of the of a wound in Jewish culture, right? And the question is who's who's who is to blame? Like. Who's exploiting whom in this situation? So one of the things, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, so lagged again. Like so, it's just such an wow. What an end to the book. But to this, your point, like great ending, horrible ending. The yes. ending is why I think we have to really question Bloom's character, Blum's character, because as you go, these we have these little scenes that. Are all, they're kind of bleak, kind of like dark comedy all the way through, but they get increasingly less, you, you become increasingly less able to see them as funny. 
but he keeps he can't stop joking about them he tells the story of his daughter trying to get her own noise nose destroyed so she can have her get her nose repaired and he tells it with he like satirizes his own daughter's experience basically um then you have the next so a little bit later you have the the netanyahu's they come for the first time, right? And he he sees them get out of the car and they're they're not wearing the right clothes and the boys are all crazy. He can't help but making fun of them. And through the whole thing, every scene, there's something that is kind of serious happening, but he sees it through the lens of his like dark sense of humor. And even at the end here, he can't help making jokes about what he's seeing involving his daughter. And so I think that it, by the end of the book, we are realizing like it's not funny anymore, Right. But he he can't help, but but interpret it through the lens of his sort of damaged sense of humor. Now we do that, like you know, I don't know. There's what's the psychological term for this, Heidi? He's he's like, is he just avoiding it? Is he burying it? Is he deflecting? Displacement, displacement. And that's why I say that I think the book is so much about his psychology, and like in a way, Mm -hmm. the damage that both of these men are inflicting even as they're in a way kind of like they started out trying to do their best and their, their ideas, their approaches in and of themselves are compelling. And, but they're, but they but their own experience is so damaged and that leads them to damage other people. And like that, and that their, their character overwhelms the ideas so the people who are listening to Netanyahu, we're reading a book. So we can look at those almost like an essay, right? We can look at Netanyahu's ideas. But when you're in the room right. with him, you kind of reject them out of hand because he's so blustery. And it's not that much different with Blum. And so I think in that way, it's examining these two men's psychology. And you can say, well, they're damaging other people, but they were damaged as well. And that allows it to get really deep into all the different comments made about the the Jewish American experience, much like it does in Asher Lev. So I, I think, I think the ending is powerful even as it's because of the way it addresses the psychology, even as it's horrible, right? You know, the, the, there's like incredible right. drama and, and the great, he doesn't shy away from making it traumatic. Like the first time you read it, it has to be a little traumatic to really work. Right. You know, that's why I think he, you know, there's, you know, the wife is saying she's so angry she's dropping f bombs, right? And the description is a little bit graphic, just just graphic enough, right? And you get the stuff in the snow and it's cold, and he heightens all the weather aspects of that, and and everybody's uncomfortable in the last five pages, and everybody's being cruel to each other, and that all has to be heightened, and you have to feel the trauma of it as a reader to for the for the for it to really work, and so the drama of it, the craft of it, I think, is very effective in that way. And allows him to really examine the psychology. Right. I agree with that. And I think that the psychology, along with that, the psychology kind of, if you zoom out, like that's the, the individual psychology is reflective of the larger questions of the novel. Just what happens when these, these two streams of, uh, of belief and experience uh, are that are representative of the character, you end up exploiting and hurting each other. And you have all of these questions of what to do with the aftermath of that. And the, those are the, the the Jewish questions that are highlighted, the societal questions that are highlighted in the novel, as well as the psychological question of the novel. So it, it works on multiple levels. Man, so should we just wrap this up here? That's going to be our question of the yeah, week. Yeah, I was going to say we need to. Well, I was just going to say the Q and A for this book. I just, it's going to be terrible. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I, because yeah. I, I mean, like it, this is a. Hey, I got you guys. Can you guys force this? Force me to choose this one. So we did not force you to choose this one. We, I stand by that. It was That's, a great recommendation. Oh yeah. It was. This it was is a, a great recommendation. Yeah, it's a. I, I ultimately, I kind of like did go with it because I wanted to read something that was unlike anything we've ever read before. Um, but I think I already know what I'm going to choose for next year's. By the way, I'll tell you off the air. 
Okay. Can't wait. Um, yeah. yeah what? So anyway, anyway, listeners, hit us with your Q and A's. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Well, oh, your cues, and we will cues. try to A. <laughs> yeah. What What should we do for this week's question of the week? As Heidi just brought up, is it nihilistic? You want to do that, Tim? Yeah. Or is there some? Okay. I think I probably, if we could talk about that further, I would want to get into a little bit about how we're defining the term nihilism and and all so, that. Yeah. So maybe do maybe maybe listeners. Do a little research so you, you know, are comfortable with the term and know what it actually means. It doesn't just mean anti-Christian or anti-religious. There's more to it. No, that's true. But, you know, usually the definition in the dictionary is going to say like rejecting religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. That's like the dictionary kind of definition. So, you have, I don't know. Yeah, that okay. That's that's an interesting question. Do you want to? Is there, do you have an do you have an alternative, David? No, not necessarily. I just wanted to see if Tim mm-hmm. had an alternative. No. Is the so? What's the question? Is the book nihilistic? Ultimately nihilistic. Okay. Is the book ultimately nihilistic? I'm going to write that down so that I uh, have it when I'm uploading the episode. Tim, did you? Yeah, I don't know that you got to address that. Do you want to say anything about that in the in the final comments? I'll answer during the Q and A. No, I would. I don't know. I'm not willing to say yes. That's that's all I can say right now. I I need to think about that. Last week we asked if the book was if that scene with the daughter was was funny with the the nose capade was funny, and there's some interesting conversation on there. So I encourage you to go check that out. On the, on the post over at Substack. Again, it's closereads.substack.com if you want to check that out or if you want to answer this week's episode, uh, episode's question of the week, or if you want to uh, contribute a question for the conversation next week. Heidi, any final thoughts? No, I'm wondering if you have anything more you want to say about the craft like the second time around that you talked. I mean, you 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 just made a couple comments on that, which were really good. Was there anything else you wanted to highlight? Uh, no, I'll I'll try to highlight a few things next week. Um, okay. Just for the sake of time, I'll, I'll say no for this week. There's a, there's a couple other things that I think he does really well. Uh, we can get into that next week. Tim, do you have any final thoughts? I have no final thoughts. <laughs> what I, do you I'm do? still chewing on this book. I really am. Oh, yeah. I mean, every other page, I decide something. I have a different opinion on it. Yeah. And, and like, I, and what, what makes it, it good? I feel like a second read would do would open my eyes a lot it yeah i mean this guy i mean look cohen knows what he's doing there's a reason that harold bloom called one of his earlier books like basically said that cohen was one of the best working novels one of the only novel novelists that he thought was like on par with you know the great american novelists the cormac mccarthy's and so forth um and this book was the one like he had you know he worked with like penguin random house and some other big publishers and they were like no this book's too niche so that nyrb had to had to publish it so you know i think it's a little bit different than yeah some of his other stuff okay well with that let's uh let's say goodbye for heidi white for tim mcintosh i'm david kern thanks so much for listening until next time happy reading 